talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Erskine is in the cloud. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Perhaps when freedom and democracy are under threat, the rest of us will realize just how important they really are. Peace. He's Scott Thompson. I'm Scott Thompson, and Tom McKay is on the board in the newsroom. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard watching the world spin. Coming up tomorrow, March 5th, Canadian Army Reserve personnel from 31 Battalion, a service battalion, will be conducting vehicle training within the following areas, Hamilton, Brantford, Woodstock, London, Windsor, uh, including highway navigation and driver training on planned routes. Why is this important? Uh, well, I'm sure we're going to get all of the information from, from Captain Jeff Johnson, but also considering where we are and what's going on in the world, uh, might be an idea to bring this uh, to everybody's attention so, um, you know, the imagination doesn't start to run wild. So to tell us more, Captain Jeff Johnson, Unit Public Affairs Representative with the 31 Service Battalion with us now. Uh, Captain, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for having me. So tell us about 31 Service Battalion. Sure, yeah. 31 Service Battalion is the, uh, well, the the service battalion that uh, sustains the brigade within southwestern Ontario here. We provide services uh, such as uh, uh, transportation, supply, food services, finance, uh, human resources, and maintenance to uh, uh, to the rest of the soldiers in in uh, southwestern Ontario. We uh, were part of 31 Brigade Group, and uh, we have companies in Windsor, Hamilton, and London, and the headquarters is in London as well. So what are you doing this weekend, and is this part of just normal training for uh, the Canadian Army Reserve? How, what's the reasoning for all this? Yeah, this is just uh, routine training. We, we do this exercise uh, annually. We have for uh, for several years. So, um, yeah, it's uh, really it's uh, it's about getting the, the troops out uh, this time of year to uh, get uh, all the vehicles together, do some driving training and, and brush up on uh, trade skills, uh, such as all those that I just mentioned. And uh, yeah, it's uh, in preparation for a, a larger exercise within the brigade that will be happening in, in mid-April. And uh, we're, uh, we're looking forward to uh, getting together again. It's, it's been a while because the, uh, well, the pandemic has kind of uh, shut down our mm. training a bit. We've been training in only small groups and uh or virtually and it's nice to uh get out with uh, the whole team and deploy some of the uh the bigger equipment and uh and and practice our trades tell us a little bit about the canadian army reserve who 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 belongs what the commitment is how you get involved sure yeah uh I mean, the Canadian Army Reserve is made up from individuals from your community. Uh, many large communities have reserve units, and uh, the the core uh, uh, purpose is to provide support to the the regular force on uh, international international stability operations, and uh, especially during um, uh, domestic operations such as Operation Lentis, uh, when uh, whenever there's a 
a community crisis such as a flood or uh, forest fires, ice storms, that kind of thing. It's, mm-hmm. uh, this is when we step up and, and come out to help the community as well. So what's the purpose of putting out a notice like this? Why do you have to do this? Just, uh, well, so there's, we're not alarmed, no one's alarmed in the community to, uh, you know, they, they see several military vehicles rolling down the highway. Um, we don't want people to make assumptions that uh, something's gone horribly wrong, especially when, uh, you know, several things are happening in the world that uh, uh, may may draw uh, some conclusions uh, in some minds. So it, it Really, uh, yeah, this has uh, nothing to do with anything. It's not linked to any external uh, or domestic issues at the time. And we are um, just uh, doing a routine exercise and and practicing our skills. So, again, this is going to happen on pretty much all on Saturday. Is that accurate? Yeah, Saturday. There will be convoys uh, leaving uh, or going through Hamilton um, up the 403 to, uh, to the 401 to London. And also coming out of Windsor, uh, we'll be converging in London and uh, doing an exercise there. And then later in the evening, we'll be uh, we'll be heading back to our home locations again. There, there may also be some vehicles driving uh, around uh, London or north of the city. But uh, yeah, it's uh, we're really looking forward to uh, to getting out there. And like you said, I guess like every everybody, I mean, you can't really necessarily, if you don't need to do this, can't do this during a global uh, pandemic. Uh, and now obviously getting the chance to to get out like everybody else uh, is. If people are interested in doing this, Jeff, in getting involved and in finding out more about the Canadian Army Reserve, uh, you know, again, when you get situations in conflict like we're seeing around the world, a lot of people uh, do start uh, listening and wondering more and, and asking questions and such. If people want to find out more or... Or, um, you know, just even give us some sort of idea of what kind of person does this? Well, any kind of person. We, we draw from the community. So whoever is in the community has uh, is welcome to uh, to apply. And uh, to, the first step is to go to uh, forces.ca and, uh, and, and take a look at uh, uh, the various options. There's several different units in the southwestern Ontario area. And uh, with various trades, um, our, our service battalion, the 31 service battalion, is uh, provides uh, opportunities for, for many different trades, uh, vehicle technicians, weapons technicians, uh, you know, professional uh, mobile support equipment operators, uh, like professional drivers um, and cooks and, uh, you know, pretty much every logistical service that, that you could think of, uh, supply chain management, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, going to the website at forces.ca, uh, you, you get a lot of the information of what units are available in your area, and it also uh, um, gives you a, a method to uh, put in an initial application to get more information. And from there, uh, recruiting representatives would uh, contact the person and and uh, go from there. Captain Jeff Johnson with us, Unit Public Affairs Representative with the 31 Service Battalion. And uh, just telling everybody, tomorrow you you may see uh, some military vehicles along the 401, 403, QEW, in in the area of Hamilton, Brantford, Woodstock, and London, Windsor. Uh, Just normal routine training. And if you're interested, forces.ca to find out more. Captain, thanks so much for the time. Good luck this weekend. 
Thank you, and thank you for having me. Things continue to uh, get worse in Ukraine. NATO uh, just said uh, recently in uh, the media, days ahead uh, look worse. Let's bring in Steve Fuderman, CBS correspondent on the border of Poland and Ukraine and with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I'm fine. No problem. So uh, give us a bit of an update here and, and the, the progress of Putin. Many say that uh, there is some sort of hope that these talks may turn into something as, as he uh, continues to learn uh, to lose uh, support in the world. Where are we with this? Is, is there any sign of it accelerating or slowing down? Well, it seems to be accelerating as far as the moves by the Russian military. I mean, they're shelling homes, uh, which they may have did before. They're going into areas which they didn't go into before. Uh, some of this, I guess, could be expected. But uh, it seems that the velocity of the, of the attacks have increased. And they're going into areas that maybe they were staying away from before. Not uh, Before, maybe they weren't going into residential areas. Now, some of the targets... If they aren't the targets, whatever, they're being hit. The residential areas are being hit, and that's uh, causing great concern. Obviously, we heard overnight, saw overnight, that uh, a fire at a, at a nuclear plant. We understand the, the Russian military yeah. has now taken control of that. Uh, what is the significance of that? How safe are these plants? Well, when you hear nuclear, you hear fire, you hear military, it's pretty frightening. And, of course... The people in this area, if they're old enough to remember Chernobyl in 1986, brings back bad memories. Now, this nuclear reactor, much different. They're built much differently than the Chernobyl reactor was, and there are a lot more safety precautions in there. We have been told by officials, atomic energy officials, that basically there was no radiation released. So that's the good news. Uh, It does concern people that the Russians were shelling this area, though. I mean, when you have a nuclear reactor there, it can obviously uh, go south. It, it can cause problems. You don't want any radioactive material in the air. That would be just a disaster. And uh, we don't know what Putin plans to do. Uh, there are 15 nuclear reactor power plants in Ukraine. This is the largest in all of Europe. So maybe this was the target. There is some belief that perhaps he just wanted to get it out of the commission to take away power from people in Ukraine. That's one of the strategies that they might try to use. But uh, when you have, like I said, the words nuclear fire, it's frightening. Uh, And is anything being done to try to protect these? Obviously, if Russia wanted to take them out, uh, they could. But there's certainly nothing in that for them either, is there? I mean, if something like that happens, it's catastrophic for everyone. I would think so. And then that's the big concern. Why would you be so risky in going into these areas? Why would you be shelling this? nuclear power plant reactor. Uh, So there are some unanswered questions, uh, but maybe it was to take the power away from the people in Kiev or in in parts of of Ukraine. I heard one report, I have not confirmed this, but I heard one report suggesting that maybe one-fifth of the power in Ukraine comes from this one power plant. So you're along the Poland-Ukraine border. What is that like? Yeah. We're hearing that the, the, there's this mass exodus of people, uh, yet people still staying to fight in Ukraine. And we've had situations. The, the town I'm at is, on the border is called, uh, Med- I always get the pronunciation wrong, 
Mediac or Mediac. Uh, but the other town, which is around eight miles in, is called Shemesh. And that is where the train station is. So these are the two places where we sort of hang out each day, the border and also the train station. There are trains going each day to and from Lviv, which is the, one of the major cities in Ukraine. And there are people going back every day. Uh, not as many as coming out, obviously, but there are people who want to go back and fight. Uh, some people want to get relatives and friends. Uh, I talked to one woman who wanted to get her cat and dog. So there are some people going back, but the, the mass exodus that you describe is going on. Although at the border, on this side of the border, you don't sense chaos, confusion. It seems to be very orderly. On the other side, the Ukraine side, you know, we've been told that you have to wait sometimes 24, 48 hours to get out. And what happens to these people once they, cro- once they cross from Ukraine into Poland? What's their future? Where do they go from there? Well, it's a, it's a very uncertain future, but I must say when they initially come here right now, they're being greeted with open arms, Polish people, volunteers, not part of the government. They just have come here welcoming them. There's a welcoming center. I don't think it's officially called a welcoming center, but uh, it's a center a few miles away from the border where sometimes the buses go. And when the people get off, they're greeted by ordinary Polish citizens, some of them holding up cardboard signs saying, if you need a place for two, I can house you, or a place for three. Uh, If you need a ride to Warsaw or Krakow, I can take you there. So the Poles have been quite receptive to these people. Listen, uh, they know what it's like, the Poles do, to have lived with, uh, uh, in their case, the Soviet domination. Now they're seeing the people in Ukraine deal with Russian domination. And these are two very close countries as far as culture, as far as language. Many people who have relatives, many people who live in Poland have relatives and friends in Ukraine and vice versa. Uh, we've, I, I don't know how much you're hearing of this, Steve, but any idea from anybody who's traveling to and fro? Because as you said, there, in, in many situations, and including with Russia, there's family, friends on both sides of these borders in some cases. Any idea how this is all playing in Russia, how this is playing in Moscow? Are, are they pretty much oblivious to what is going on where you are? Well... If you want to be aware of things, it's not too difficult these days with social media. Having said that, the, you know, the Russian media is under Putin's control or under his uh, hammer, I guess, if they do something he doesn't like. So it's still not being reported as a war or an invasion. I think the term Putin likes is a uh, military uh, procedure. I forget what he calls it. Uh, so it's it's. They're trying to put a, be- a good face on this. Are people finding out? Probably. We, we know that you can't keep secrets these days. So uh, people who want to find out will find out what's going on there. And I'm sure many Russians are not going to be happy with what's happening. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Winterfest. And, you know, not, not, not bad weather. I mean, you know, uh, we've had warmer, I guess. <laughs> You know, it's not always snowy at Winterfest, uh, but part of Winterfest, uh, which runs until this weekend, the Art Gallery of Hamilton is offering free admission this weekend. Tell us all about it. Megan Olenek is with us, Head of Marketing and Communications with the Art Gallery of Hamilton, 123 King Street West in the Hammer. And with us now, Megan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for taking the time. We appreciate that. What is life or what was life uh, like for uh, the art gallery during this global pandemic? How, how, what have you been doing for the last two years? As I guess, like all of us have <laughs> We've sitting been here. around. We've been working. I know. Uh, most, most of the staff has been on off site. Um, but we, when we are allowed, when we were allowed to open, we did, we did open our doors to the public with restrictions. Um, so we did try to do that as much as possible. Um, we did have to do a bit of shuffling with some exhibitions to make sure that they were on long enough for people to see but other than that we uh we stuck it out and here we are coming out of the the winter with Winterfest and and celebrating some some new exhibitions so uh we remember as we go through various waves of this you know sometimes it had opened sometimes it had closed and then obviously we're towards you know the end of this hopefully endemic and and lots of vaccination uh and such but uh you know during these different waves perhaps uh interest not as high do you find now people are are chomping at the bit they want to get in they want to see what's going on they want to get out and about now the yes the excitement is real um our members are coming out in droves. We've got people calling in to say they're so they're so happy to be able to come out again and and um, just just being able to get out in, in the in the the community again, which is really a great a great thing to have. And we've missed it a lot. Lots of new Hamiltonians in the area over the course of the last couple of years. To those that may not know uh, anything about the Art Gallery of Hamilton, give us a little bit of uh, history here. Uh, give us a little bit of perspective. Oh, there is a lot of history. So the Art Gallery of Hamilton's been open for uh, more than 105 years. We opened in 1914. Um, obviously, it's grown since then. Uh, we have a, a collection of over 10,500 pieces. Um, at any given time, uh, we have um, upwards, right now, actually, we have eight exhibitions on display. Um, we do have um, our first level, which is um, you do have to buy tickets to come and see, which are our lead exhibitions. But up on gallery level two, we are always free admission. And that's not always known. So I did want to <laughs> make sure yeah. that was very clear. You can come anytime to the gallery and come and see art for free. That is good to know. I bet not many yeah. knew. So l- let's talk yeah. about what you've got going on as we wind up Winterfest and, and what's going on this weekend. Yeah, so this weekend we're open 11 to 4, both Saturday and Sunday, uh, to celebrate not only Winterfest, but three new exhibitions that we have on display. Um, in terms of programming, uh, we have gallery tours at 11, 1, and 3, both Saturday and Sunday. Um, from 2 to 4, we have hands-on activities on both days. Um, our shop is open, and we have... Um, two exhibiting artists, which will actually be on site if you want to come and meet them and talk to them about their exhibitions. We'll have Michelle Pearson Clark, as well as Ingrid Mayerhofer on site. Um, There will also be at 10 a.m., which is before the doors open, um, a pre-registered yoga program with Good Body Feel Yoga Studio um, at the gallery. So you can go onto our website and pre-register to um, take part in that. Um, so that's kind of the itinerary for the weekend. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit about our exhibitions, which are really exciting. Um, our lead exhibition right now is called Margaret Watkins Black Light. And Margaret Watkins was a, fam- uh, a Hamilton-born photographer in the 19th century who was one of Canada's most significant early 20th century artists. Um, we're featuring over 100 photographs from her short career that were rediscovered after her death. And the Art Gallery of Hamilton is actually the only Canadian venue um, showing this exhibition. So we're really, really excited about it. 
Um, we do have Michelle Pearson Clark Muscle Memory on display, um, which is a vid video and photography installation that explores the vulnerability of queer female masculinity. And it is also Michelle's first major solo exhibition, so also mm. very exciting. Um, and then Ingrid Meyerhofer, After All That Was Solid Melts Into Air. And Ingrid is a Hamilton-based photographer who was... Um, who's explored and documented the altered King Street East streetscape during the process of the demolition ahead of the LRT project. So it's oh, very, very local, cool. Uh, yeah. It's very, yeah, very interesting. She's got video collages and photo montages that highlight the displacement that's happening and taking place in the name of this LRT progress. And you can find out more at artgalleryofhamilton.com. That's artgalleryofhamilton.com in the last week of Winterfest. Uh, Megan Olenek with us, Head of Marketing and Communication with the Art Gallery of Hamilton, where you'll always see art for free. Uh, there you go. Megan, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you so much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Hello, Tim. How are you? I hope you're doing well on this Friday. I am okay, Scott, and how are you? So far, so good. Uh, before we talk about issues uh, and conflict in the world, uh, let's talk provincially. Christine Elliott, Deputy Premier, uh, has announced she will not seek re-election. Your thoughts on all of this and and where this leaves the Ford camp? Um, well, it's a loss for the Ford camp, uh, obviously. She's a, an accomplished person, Deputy Premier, Health Minister. I think she's uh, courted herself exceptionally well during the the pandemic. You can hardly blame her for wanting to step out of politics. She's had a good, long uh, career in the in the public sector. She's ran for leader a few times. Um, maybe she wants to get out and do something else. And at 67, she's certainly healthy and well enough to do that. And she knows, uh, as the, the widow of Jim Flaherty, um, what politics can do to you, too, if you don't step out at the right time. It can be a very mm. grueling thing on one's health and, and wellness. Especially during a global pandemic as uh, as a health minister, uh, the leader of the NDP opposition said this is just a signal of what's going on in uh, Doug Ford's world. He's got a retention problem. Is that an issue here? Uh, no, I don't. I, not, not as it relates to Christine Elliott. You might like a little bit more grace from Andrea Horwath. I mean, you know, she's always talking about the need for grace. In politics, and she's right on that. Uh, everything doesn't have to be about a political shot, uh, particularly on a day like this, uh, for somebody who deserves uh, some public credibility. Look, not having Rod Phillips as well in the cabinet, and uh, and losing Christine Elliott. Um, yep, sure, certainly that's the, there's some talent that stepped out, but I think in both those cases, anyway, it makes sense that they may look to do something else. Uh, replacements at this time are too early. Yeah, too early, I get to, to see. I mean, you're not really going to know who some of their star recruits might be, I don't think, until right. uh, next month or May. All right, let's talk about what's happening in the world and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Prime Minister on his way uh, to meet with allies. Significance of this, uh, what can the rest of us do as we watch uh, and obviously we know the chatter about no-fly zones and, and NATO and such and why we can't go in. Uh, how do you view all this? Uh, well, I think it, it makes sense to meet in person. Certainly that, uh, given the magnitude of the issue, that was what happened in the major conflicts in years past, as you know, that there were these in-person meetings because you really can get things done and they can probably share intelligence more easily when they're all locked 
in a particular place. I mean, I think Canada is still doing pretty well uh, in our commitment. Well, I think what has been exposed, though, Scott, and this is a debate that I think we'll pick up um, in, uh, in, 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 in earnest after we get through the next few weeks, and that is even if we wanted to send more or send military to Canada, uh, sorry, to uh, the Ukraine and send uh, add military support to NATO, we're discovering that we have some major equipment issues, and, and that's a big thing. As I say, that won't be front and center now. I, I think, to be fair to the Trudeau government and uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland and uh, Melanie Jolie, the Foreign Affairs Minister, and Anita Anand, they've been good team players with the rest of the world in this. The big debate, of course, is around should there be or not be a no-fly zone, but uh, Stellenberg, the... Um, the NATO Secretary General has said no because they want to avoid further conflict. Does that continue to be the uh, position taken, particularly if Russia's aggression continues? How does this change the world discussion coming out of a global pandemic? You know, there were some signs of optimism there for a couple of weeks until we got into this uh, coming out of the global pandemic and now this conflict in there somewhere where the Ottawa occupation and such, I guess that's fallen by by the wayside. But how will this change discussions moving forward? You talked about military uh, expenditures. Germany's having that same sort of discussion, but even energy, because this is, you know, this is Putin holding runner, uh, energy over over the heads of, of the rest of Europe. Will it change any energy policy in North America and in Canada? Well, certainly there are a lot of Canadian premiers that are hoping that it will, from uh, my premier in Newfoundland and Labrador, Andrew Fury, to Jason Kenney, to Scott Moe, all looking at the opportunity that perhaps it presents. Uh, it will, could get into energy security and to your bigger issue, I mean, maybe there was worry in the early days of this, and we're still in the early days, but the early, earlier days of this, that world order might crumble, but there seems to be a charge to maintain world order and to isolate Putin. That could be a positive thing here. And, of course, though, the wild card in all of this is what are the Chinese doing and where are they going to pop up mm. and how will they look to advantage um, their, themselves during this exercise? Uh, are many forgetting about the Chinese Communist Party in all of this? Because if it, all of a sudden it was them that was doing something like this, we've been in a far, far different predicament. Yeah, the Chinese are better organized and better funded, I think, than the Russians. And yeah. have a broader yeah. unanimity of support and are certainly more pervasive. Uh, I think it probably raises a flag uh, for people to recognize that uh, there, there is some mis- there's some fortune in all of this. It is Russia that is the agitator here, more precisely Putin. And if Putin, Putin can be isolated and the oligarchs rebel on him, uh, maybe there's an opportunity to, to end all of this. That may, again, not an expert on chi- Sino affairs, but that, that may be more difficult in a uh, circumstance that involves China. What about self-sufficiency? Because, again, we're seeing it with energy now, with what Putin's doing during this conflict. But even during the pandemic, it was PPE trying to get vaccine. We were like four, six months behind everybody else, uh, that sort of things. Is, is, is this, again, going to drive home that point to continue to try to find self, uh, self-sufficiency? Yeah, I, I, look, I, it's gonna, I, I think you'll see it, uh, be a centerpiece in the conservative leadership race that's gonna play itself out here in Canada. I think it will be 
part and parcel of the debate in Parliament. There's a big decision supposed to be coming on the East Coast, um, a Beta Nord. Uh, it's a major reserve on the East Coast. There's lots of LNG uh, potential in Canada. That's already factored into some of the conversation. And we know the, the government's current stated goal on um, on hitting greenhouse gas targets. So I expect all of that to come into the four very quickly. All right. Uh, obviously, we were talking yesterday about how the uh, International Paralympic Committee has uh, removed uh, Russia and Belarus from the Paralympic Games. Initially, uh, they had said that they would let them perform, but without their their flags, colors per se. Uh, but you know, Russia is already doing that because of the doping allegations and such. Uh, obviously, pressure, and uh, they have been banned uh, as a result of all of this. It's kind of odd that uh, when this Olympics started, people were questioning whether we should be sending athletes to Beijing, China, considering the atrocities of the Chinese Communist Party. And then by the time the game ends, uh, games end in Beijing, it's Russia and Belarus uh, that are actually banned. What a, what a bizarre turn of events this whole Olympics has taken. Let's bring in Taylor McKee, Assistant Professor of Sports Management, Brock University, and with us now. Taylor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, off the top, your thoughts on where we are. As I mentioned, this started with, you know, many questioning whether uh, we should be going to Beijing. Now at the end of these, it's Russia and Belarus that are out. What are your thoughts of this decision? I think you gave a really good overview there of of how this has sort of all gone down. Certainly, I would characterize this as a very turbulent period, Uh, certainly international sports, certainly not one that's without uh, historical precedents. We've, we know those of uh, your listeners who can recall uh, the Olympics from 1980, 1984, even 1976 in Montreal. There have been instances where, where nations have been asked to leave. The expulsion taking place this soon before the Games and then the subsequent uh, having to get everyone out of there, that's a, a little bit unprecedented. But certainly we are layering scandals on scandals at this point in international sport. Yeah, from two different uh, two different entities. By the time the games are over, which was absolutely bizarre, there was rumors floating around and information leaked last week. Uh, there was obviously a, mo- a meeting between the Chinese president and the Russian president as the Beijing games were going on, um, and now we're hearing information leaking that uh, that Putin had actually asked the the Chinese president, or sorry, that uh, the Chinese president had asked Putin not to invade during the games. Uh, but it's bizarre that he didn't wait till the end of the Paralympic Games. Yeah, it's an unfortunate situation. Certainly, there there is a we are asking a lot of Paralympic athletes right now when it comes to uh, they we're asking them to be elite athletes. We're asking them to perform at the highest levels, but we're also now asking them to be diplomats. They're yeah. answering, you know, I think valid questions from media because I mean we have media that are there. How are they supposed to? These are these are relevant questions to ask. But my goodness, I mean to to have those information that information coming out and and that playing on in the background. I mean, that's a lot to ask out of seasoned ambassadors, let alone, you know, athletes that have been training their whole lives just to get to this moment. And you think there's so many other things that an athlete needs to focus on. Uh, and as you mentioned, I mean, you know, these games, uh, games certainly aren't immune to this sort of thing. But, yeah, it just la- it just adds another level of anxiety or stress to the whole competition, does it not? Absolutely. And, and it's it's just unfathomably difficult the situation that was brewing prior to the banning and it helps to sort of explain why the ipc would ultimately decide to ban and expel because essentially you had a situation where at each and every event the competitors themselves were going to have to re-litigate the crisis on the field of play where Mm -hmm. if you were curling against russian teams now now i have to decide am i going to 
not compete against them and forfeit and then therefore jeopardize my Olympic dream. So it was uh, at the end of the day, at the 11th hour, they decided on the, the, the method of most expediency, but you would have had a really ugly situation, situation play out had they not decided to expel them. What about the significance of this for Russia? I mean, already, um, y- you know, in bad books for, for the state doping scandal, not competing under the flag. Um, what does this do for Russia and, and Olympics, uh, whether Paralympics or the, or the International Olympic Committee moving forward? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And we are on, what, chance number six or seven at this yeah. point for the Russian Olympic Committee? I mean, it's a great question. And I think it's one that uh, really does reveal the power that the Russian Olympic Committee has within the IOC. It's something that I think is puzzling for many outside of uh, many in Canada to say, like, why do we put up with, uh, with, with the Russian Olympic Committee? Why don't we just say, you know, screw this, let's get rid of them. But the point of the matter is we, we have had Olympics without Russian athletes of any variety. And I think that we, as you mentioned before, the preferred method of dealing with uh, the previous scandal, which was strip them of the country, strip them of the anthem, which, you know, would be a compelling uh, punishment in any other context. But wit's end is, is, is we're so far past wit's end now with, uh, with where we are with Russia at this point. I think that it, Canadians should probably start preparing themselves for international sport uh, without Russians, but that's not uh, just the Olympics. For instance, in my class, I asked my students, you know, how many of you are willing to, if you ran the IOC, ban Russian athletes from the Olympics? About 70% of the hands went up. I said, how many of you are willing to have international hockey without Russians? And about two hands went up. And I think that's the dichotomy that we're getting into here, where we need to start being prepared for for international sport that we in Canada hold dear to be affected as well. We certainly know what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and and sanctions and and, and war and so on and so forth. So uh, almost talking about this seems to be a sidebar, but we can't uh, minimize the significance of sport in uh, in Russia, and it, it just seems that every sport is leaving in droves, whether it's uh, soccer, whether it's international hockey, whether it's Formula One or such. What's the significance of that? Great point right, right away. I mean, sport is actually something where Canada can throw its weight around in a way that actually might reach Putin directly. I mean, this is something that uh, it's a little harder for Canada to throw its weight around from a foreign policy standpoint. Um, sport is an issue that will reach uh, those that are making decisions in Russia and Canada's actions do have an impact. Now, some of these actions and and the, some of the actions we've seen, not all of them are going to be as effective as we think. For instance, the ban on CHLers uh, from Russia and Belarus actually serves Russian hockey interests. So we need to be careful and strategic. If the goal is to mm-hmm. cause the largest amount of impact and the goal is sporting isolation, well, returning Russian teenagers back to junior hockey leagues, or if the, if we follow the advice of Dominic Kashuk, for instance, and return Russian NHLers back to Russia, that might have a deleterious effect. That might have the opposite effect that we desire. Perhaps we should be more aggressive in trying to remove players from Russia. We've only got about 30 seconds left, but I was going to bring up the NHL. A very uh, uh, awkward press conference with Ovechkin a few days ago. I mean, how, how, how do you handle this, even at a professional sport level here? It is extremely difficult. And yes, these sort of hostage negotiation videos we're seeing from uh, from the NHL. I mean, I, honestly, we have to consider the fact that it might not be one of the worst things in the world to have them here away from Russia, having to answer tough questions. That's OK. Putting them in awkward situations, forcing them to sort of confront their allegiances, that that can be actually a positive thing as well if our goal is sporting isolation. Fascinating time for sport as well as everything else uh, as we have this conflict in the world. Uh, Taylor McKee with his assistant professor of sport management, Brock University. Fascinating discussion, Taylor. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much for having me. 
All right. Uh, obviously, we know what has been transpiring in the world, uh, in the world, and especially with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how that has uh, affected uh, um, discussions around the world. Uh, once again, supply chains are a concern, and of course, the uh, the the survival of uh, Ukraine and in in Ukrainian people, and the uh, just the sheer courage and and fortitude they have shown in in keeping control as much as they can of their country while a uh, a president of russia is just hell-bent on on taking over uh this country uh that being said uh we are into what day nine of this many thought that this would be over a long time ago prime minister justin trudeau announcing he is heading to europe to meet with other leaders allies and such to discuss uh russia's invasion of ukraine to talk about all of this abigail beeman with us ottawa correspondent for global news and with us now abigail thanks for the time i hope you're well thanks for having me so, Abigail, uh, the Prime Minister heading to Europe. Where is he heading? Who is he going to meet with? Uh, well, it's a, a bit of a whirlwind, whirlwind trip, let's say. We just got the details. There are further details in the last few minutes. But the first stop uh, is in London, where he will have a, a trilateral meeting with uh, Boris Johnson of the UK and uh, Mark Rutte of uh, the Netherlands. He's also, we just learned a few moments ago, uh, planning to have an audience with the Queen uh, while he is in London. Uh, and then the remainder of the week involves trips to Latvia, Germany, uh, as well as Poland. And of course, a standout there in Latvia, uh, the Prime Minister will be visiting some of the Canadian troops who are stationed there as part of NATO. So are there any other leaders that are getting together, or is this just uh, the Prime Minister going over and meeting with various leaders individually? Uh, there seems, and, and I should say that you know some of these details are of course subject to change, but right. there seem to be a few uh, a few meetings with a few different leaders. Let's say if you're asking, you know, is this some sort of a G7 summit? No, it's it, it's not, and there's no sort of official gathering of that nature. But uh, while he is in Latvia, he will be uh, meeting with uh, the prime ministers of Latvia, Estonia, uh, and Lithuania. Uh, you know, all sitting around the same table, that type of thing. So a, a number of meetings with with different leaders, but not some sort of a, a big group come together, if that was the question. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was trying to figure out. Uh, so uh, how did this all get arranged? The objective? Is this just the time to do this? Always good to meet face-to-face with leaders? Well, I, I, I think it's fair to say that Ukraine is the real impetus for this trip and what's unfolding in Ukraine. And the goal here is to talk with allies about uh, what can come next, specifically uh, at the meeting on Monday but with uh, Boris Johnson at the table. Uh, the Canadian side press release talks about coordinating additional responses to Russia. So I asked in a technical briefing that we just had, are you saying anything specific about, you know, what's on the table at this point in terms of additional measures, not uh, showing their hand at this point in terms of what any additional responses or measures may be. But that is the point of this week to have all of these meetings to learn, you know, what can Canada do further to help uh, people in Ukraine. Also, of course, another element of this trip will be looking at the humanitarian side of things and the crisis of, uh, of the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians 
Ukrainians who are, are flooding into Poland. Uh, the Prime Minister will be speaking with the Polish government about that and, and see uh, what Canada can do to help uh, in that arena as well. So Ukraine is, is, is top of mind and, and, and uh, the impetus behind this trip, but the uh, Prime Minister's office making uh, the point that he will also be discussing other issues such as economic recovery, climate change, uh, specifically highlighting that that would be on the table in uh, a meeting with the German Chancellor. Any chatter about energy at all and and solving some of uh, Europe's energy woes? Uh, Yeah, that's an important question as well. Sort of uh, seems like that will be discussed with uh, in in Germany. That that came up in terms of uh, the the agenda of those meetings there. But there are lots of further questions to be addressed, and, and we will be watching for that, too. We've certainly heard about uh, punishing extremes. We're seeing all sorts of reports about oligarchs use, losing their yachts and all sorts of things. Uh, is there any more sanctions we can do? It seems we've, we've pretty much nailed them. Or is there more that they can do? Well, I think that's the big question, and I think that's what's bringing some heads together. Uh, we'll try and come up with what else could have an impact. Uh, every day there seems to be some new announcement of some kind of new sanctions. And uh, these are allies who have gone, you know, as far or further than we have in all of these areas. So certainly a like-minded uh, table at all of these different tables, should I say, that the Prime Minister will be, will be sitting at. But that's the goal here, uh, to figure out what else can be done. Anything more, Abigail, on peace talks or even this uh, corridor, safe corridor? Right. So uh, I'm sure that that will that will be part of the discussions, especially that safe corridor in terms of discussions with Poland and, and the mass numbers of, of refugees who, who are flooding uh, Poland's borders there. I, I'm sure that that will that that will come up. But that's not something that has been detailed specifically uh, by senior government officials at this point. All right, Abigail Beeman with us, Ottawa correspondent for Global News. The Prime Minister is heading to Europe to meet with allies. And, of course, make sure you're watching Global News for more on all of this. Abigail, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Always look forward to bringing in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Well, I'd be better if we're talking about happier sort of subjects. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's a difficult time in the world. Uh, let's see if there is some optimism here, Christian, uh, and, t- and start with safe corridors and their chatter of uh, talks coming up this weekend. Are, is this credible or is this just lip service? Well, I think this uh, there might be something to this. Uh, that uh, the Russians might feel it might allow them uh, to achieve their military objectives. And the Ukrainians obviously feel uh, that this is at least some way to try to avoid some of the carnage, uh, because it would essentially then militarize the cities insofar as you get the civilian population out and the people who are left behind are the people who um, want to uh, defend the city. Um, uh, So so hopefully reducing some of the um, uh, very egregious collateral damage that we have already seen and that is only bound to get worse. The president of Ukraine came out uh, saying accused Putin of using nuclear terror by hitting uh, nuke plants or certainly going uh, awful close to them. Is he crazy enough to hit a plant like this? I mean, this is completely different from using bombs here. 
I think this was incidental. This is a function of the fact that Putin spent much of his light infantry in the early days of the war. And so now he doesn't have the troops to occupy cities. So he has to resort to uh, larger, uh, to shelling by larger uh, caliber weapons, artillery, tanks uh, from the air. And he has to find other fighting columns that have proven more effective at achieving their objectives because that column from the north, as we know, has stalled. So he's bringing in columns from the northeast, the east and the south and the column from the south, that power plant happens to be right on the way on its road to Kiev. So the commander had to make a tactical decision whether he's going to evade the plant or whether he's going to take the plant. He obviously decided he was going to take those risks and take that plant, perhaps in part because now the Russians have control strategically over the electricity supply to much of the industrial and population heartland of eastern Ukraine. What does it say when Ukraine, little old Ukraine with some weaponry that's coming across uh, the NATO border is giving the Russian, big bad Russian army a run for its money? What does this say? Uh, well, at the at the macro level, what attackers, the mistake that attackers often make, that they overestimate their own capabilities and they underestimate the capabilities and the determination uh, of uh, their defenders, of their adversaries. But I think it also says we can't buy the meta narratives from these authoritarian regimes, where the Russians, of course, wanted to play up the size of the Russian army that had been assembled around Ukraine. Look, I've always said, you'll remember, we've had these conversations, this is not the Soviet army. This Mm. army has morale problems, it has maintenance problems, it has modernization problems. And on top of that, what we're seeing is these guys can't organize their own logistics and supply lines. They can't communicate with one another. They have serious command and control issues, as we see, at least with that column coming in from the north. Um, And so that there is actually more hope, perhaps, for the Ukrainian defenders here. But I think uh, it's going to get very ugly in terms of of Russian military might. Um, And so the Ukrainian defenders will need all the help and all the prayer that they can get. The Prime Minister is heading off to Europe, uh, meeting with various leaders. It's not like a summit or anything. Does this help or is this just exposure on the world stage? No, I think there is something to this. So deterrence has two components. There's the military deterrence. You want to show you have the military capabilities uh, and the commitment to stare down your adversary. But you also want to engage in a signaling exercise. That is to say, Putin has always believed, and that was one of the objectives of this campaign, to try to divide the European Union, to try to divide NATO. And so politically, NATO is trying to signal that it's resolved, that it is standing united, it is standing together. And let's remember, this could get ugly. Imagine if Putin starts targeting the supply lines that NATO is enabling coming out of Poland into Ukraine, for instance, with cruise missiles. Imagine if one of those cruise missiles strays into Polish territory, Poland would surely call in Article 5, the collective defense obligation under the NATO treaty. And so NATO allies, this is no longer a hypothetical question of whether they would stand Mm. together. There's a very real risk that this conflict could escalate. And that's what the prime minister signaling that countries as far away as Canada have it in their strategic interest to continue to stand side by side with their European allies. It appears that Putin doesn't really know what to do next militarily. Uh, What does he do after this is all over now that he's public enemy number one? How does he get whether he retreats, whether he takes Ukraine? How does he how does he sell this moving forward? How does he sell Russia moving forward? 
So much of this will hinge on whether in the next week or so he can achieve his objective of, at least his tactical objective of regime change in Kiev and installing his puppet regime. If Kiev holds, I think that would be a turning point in the war and it would pose an existential risk to the continuity of the Putin regime. If he can overturn Kiev, then I think he can try to continue to sell this to the Russian population um, as uh, having achieved sort of his immediate objectives. But of course, what what NATO has been signaling is that even if Putin is able to uh, overrun uh, Ukrainian cities, he's still in for um, a vicious counterinsurgency campaign styled after the 1980s Afghanistan uh, counterinsurgency that took some 10 years. So I think uh, NATO is showing that it has resolved to hunker down for the long term. Remember, the Russians have, by all accounts, already lost 9,000 troops in 10 years in Afghanistan. They lost 13,000 troops. So there's a clear signal that this is going to get a lot bloodier for Putin, regardless of whether he takes Kiev or not. So trying to get him to sit down at the table and stop the insanity. Only got 30 seconds left here, Christian. Uh, are Russians seeing the cost? The prime minister is suggesting they are. are. Are they oblivious to what's going on? Or are they starting to see the cost of this? Well, indirectly, they can see the cost because, of course, Putin is doubling down on dissent, on protest, on free speech, making sure people parrot only the meta narrative coming out of the Kremlin. And that suggests to me that the Put Putin and his regime are increasingly afraid of their own people, as tyrants normally are, and that he fears that he's losing legitimacy both by the people and perhaps by his inner coterie and elite. Christian Leprac, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute. Always fascinating. Thanks for the time, Christian. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Have a good weekend. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of chatter and lots of concern, especially last night when we saw fire uh, around uh, Europe's, uh, or rather Ukraine's largest uh, nuclear plant. And uh, the good news is it appears that uh, the reactors themselves uh, have not been damaged in any way. This was a uh, a building that was outside of the actual re uh, reactor buildings and such that was hit. Uh, stray missile, what have you, but uh, either way, you get fire around a nuclear plant. It is of concern. Let's bring in T uh, David Novog, professor in the Department of Engineering Physics, McMaster University, and with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thank you for having me. Uh, how concerned are you when you start to see a battle going on around a nuclear facility, whether it's a direct target or something that flies astray? What were your thoughts last night? Yeah, last night was, was very alarming. I, I mean, I learned about it on the news and, and through Twitter and feeds like that, like everybody else. And, you know, while, while I know all the details of the plant and how they're designed to, you know, protect themselves from fires and from, you know, severe, severe trauma like, like that, it's not something, you know, we go around testing in, in, in anger. And, and, and so, you know, any kind of activity like that around a nuclear plant is, is very concerning. Are you surprised that this has been uh, allowed to happen in the sense that, you know, one of these things uh, gets hit, it, it affects everybody far and wide? Yeah, and considering the proximity to, to you know, the border with Russia, I, I think it must have been a, a concern as well for, for both sides. Um, and, and certainly it's a unique, unique uh, event in that there hasn't been, a, a, you know, a, a ground war 
that encompassed nuclear power plants previously. So it, it, it is a, it is a unique situation. And I know the International Atomic Energy Agency is really involved in watching it closely. What is their protocol regarding uh, nuclear plants? Are they strictly off uh, limits? What is there a, a world order or or protocol around these plants? Yeah, through the through the agreements signed at the international level through the United Nations and the IEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, the plants are supposed to be uh, you know off off limits for for any incursions in order that they can uh, you know maintain their safety features, maintain operations, and and, uh, and and keep, you know, the entire public safe. And so I, I think, um, you know, that the events there were truly, uh, uh, you know, I, I was awestruck that, that the Russians would even consider um, that kind of incursion so close to a nuclear plant. What if one was hit, David? So the, the primary systems and, and the safety systems are very well protected. The, the containment systems and structures are designed to withstand very high impact loads and, you know, uh, on the order of plane crashes. Um, but this, you know, uh, of course, they're designed like that and, and can withstand them. But there are sensitive equipment in and around the station. You know, there's lots of bunkers with diesel fuel and diesel generators and, yeah. and you know, solvents and these other things that can burn and, and, and cause a very nasty situation. And, and the primary safety concern is really to make sure that these units... Um, you know, that their emergency systems and backup power supplies you know, have, have, are, are integral and, and, and functioning. And, and, you know, if you have large fires and, and, uh, and, and, you know, nasty chemical fires taking place nearby, it makes it difficult to ensure that their safety, you know, can be maintained. What about the Chernobyl site, which we all remember from way back when? Uh, we understand that the the Russian military has, has has taken that site over as well. Is that still a concern? I think the the units there are all shut down in the Chernobyl area. There are no more operating reactors in in, in that site. Uh, there is, of course, the the remains and the the containment structure that's been built off off the uh, the unit that was that underwent the accident. In the 80s, and I, I did go there as an observer some time ago. And the the Ukrainian government and international efforts have done an excellent job at, at constructing new containment facilities around that. And I would expect those to to you know maintain their their integrity through this you know through these events. I think there were some reported incidences of higher radiation in the region, but. Um, it's believed that, you know, as tanks and military troops are tracing, you know, rummaging through the roads and side roads, that mm. there is still some fallout from the original accident, you know, 20 or 30 years ago that they've disturbed wow. and put up into the air. Fifty uh, percent of uh, Ukraine's power through nuclear. They have a series of reactors, I guess, four uh, with with 15, four sites, 15 in total. I understand that this area is rich in minerals to to. Uh, to supply this industry, how 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 stable, healthy is this industry, especially when we see happening what we're seeing happening? Yeah, I, I think the the certainly it it means we have to ask questions about their the you know how how these how these reactor sites are are treated in a in you know when military uh, events transpire like this. And so if you imagine they've established safe corridors for refugees and, and, you know, to exit the affected regions, my own personal belief is it would be nice to establish, you know, similar 
protocols that allow the reactors to to you know get work for workers in and out uh, fuel and food and all those things you need to maintain you know a, a healthy workforce at the site because uh, you know it, it's in it is important infrastructure to Ukraine and to the surrounding countries that they export electricity to um, and so it, it would be it would be you know a real shame if, if if the events that are transpiring there you know put that in jeopardy we certainly know that uh, Russian, Russia is holding energy over the heads of Europe. That's, that's certainly uh, one of their main cards here. What about the health of nuclear energy, its future? Is it still an, a viable option for the world? Yeah, I think more and more nuclear energy is being looked at or re-looked at because it is a very low carbon uh, energy source and can provide uh, you know, tremendous amounts of electricity. And as we're talking about you know, electrifying uh, industrial processes and, and switching to all electric vehicles, first and foremost, in a lot of people's mind is where is, you know, this clean electricity going to come from? And I think many countries, including Canada, ha- have, have, you know, uh, re-examined and are looking, looking to develop the nuclear low-carbon energy as part of the mix of energy to, to meet those needs. What about the disposal of used material? Is that still a challenge? I, I think the, the disposal in Canada is managed by, they're one of the best organizations I've ever worked with. They're called the Nuclear Waste Management Organization, the NWMO. And they're really uh, uh, good at discussing with the public and communities what, what the options are for nuclear, uh, nuclear waste disposal. And they went through a selection of about 20 or 30 uh, around 20 or 30, I don't remember the exact number, communities that were interested in hosting a permanent repository for the used nuclear fuel. And I think now they're in the selection process between one or two sites um, in order to go further and start you know, drilling, drilling some boreholes and test cavities and those kind of things. So I think the MWMO has really done a remarkable job at ensuring that we have a, a good solution here in Canada and that the communities, you know, where these solutions would be are, are willing and, and, and informed hosts uh, for that solution. David Novog with us, Professor, Department of Engineering, Physics, McMaster University, talking about nuclear energy and, of course, how it factors into uh, the Russian-Ukraine conflict and what we're seeing in the world. David, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. So I'm out today running some errands uh, and went to fill the car with gas. Uh, it turned out I didn't have any money, so I just left the car there. And I guess they can sell it to somebody and pay for the gas. And maybe uh, there's an oligarch out there that uh, can take my car over and afford to put gas in it at a buck seventy-four a liter. And at the end of the month, uh, going up again, uh, thanks to a uh, carbon tax. You know, when gas is jumping like ten cents a liter at a uh, every time, and then we know it's coming at the end of the month. A buck seventy-four now, so and a buck eighty-four by the end of the month. Scott Radley now with us, coming up after the six o'clock news. Scott, hope you're doing well. Oh, I love this topic. I love this topic. (laughs) Rising gas prices. I love that we have politicians who have private drivers and gold-plated pensions and large salaries and don't have to worry about this stuff saying, hey, but it's okay. People really want the price to go up in the big picture. We have our own uh, our own oligarchs right here. Oh, man. You know, I, I'm sorry. I, I, It's not an argument against the idea of 
good environmentalism or all the rest. If they're arguing about, you know what, we do have to look after the planet for down in the future, but we also have to look after people today. Well, that's the thing, Scott. And, you know, uh, right now, uh, Europe is in desperate need of clean, natural gas. And, of course, we don't have any pipelines, so we can't get it to them. Uh, So what should we do? Should we uh, go get a whole pile of those wind turbines that I know there were a plant in Simcoe, but I think it's since closed uh, or somewhere around there, and and just send over barges of wind turbines to Germany? Because I don't think they're really up on that technology either, which is why they're buying so much stuff from uh, from Russia. But like, what are we supposed to do here? How are we supposed to bridge the next thirty years? Nobody seems to want to talk about that. Well, something came up in the in the State of the Union address from President Biden the other day, which I thought was really interesting. Um, when he was talking about what reverse, you remember hearing that part? Uh, you just cut out for a sec, oh, so you're going to have to repeat that for me. Sorry. Yeah, Biden said that he was going to release sixty million gallons yes. from the U.S. reserves to give them. So Absolutely. Wait a second. If, if gas and oil is bad, why would you be releasing to give to them? Yeah. Right? Why would you not say, well, no, we're going to try and like send you some hydroelectricity versus... I thought so, Scott. I thought it was absolutely rich when last week uh, the Prime Minister, and he said this in French, so we lost it in the translation, but he said in French, we're no longer going to purchase... Uh, oil from Russia, and apparently every day a barge pulls up and, and they offload a million dollars, which, you know, by the time you're finished, it's like a half a million dollars a year, or a billion dollars a year, sorry, uh, of gas coming in from Russia. And it's, well, it's only a small amount. It's only like 2.6%. Well, we're only 1.6% contributors to global uh, to the global uh, uh, greenhouse issue. So uh, why are we buying any oil from Russia or any other country for that matter. Because we don't produce enough ourselves. And, you know, beyond the price here. Because that's dirty. That's dirty. Well, beyond the price, which is a big problem, but beyond the price here, there's the secondary issue of this. And that is there are many around the world that rely on Russian oil. And that means billions of dollars being poured into Putin's coffers that can pay for things like a war because those European countries are terrified of, li- of putting sanctions against him because then the oil could be cut off and they're completely screwed. Yeah. And so if we were able to provide that clean oil, and yes, you know what, there is. The, to the people who argue, well, what about the chance that a pipe could burst or a boat could sink or whatever? <laughs> yes, you know what, there is a chance that there could be an oil spill. There is or an oil, uh, or what, a train load of tankers could take out a Quebec town? Come on. But beyond that, so yes, there is a chance that could happen, but us not providing the oil is not making Russia or Saudi Arabia or whatever no. not provide the oil, and they're not taking anywhere near the same safety regulations and rules that we are. So yes, it could happen theoretically, but if we're worried about the planet, the big planet, it's a big round thing, it's not just us, then should a spill there not be just as bad as a spill here? And if we can do it better and safer and take the legs out from under the authoritarian regimes that scare everybody around the world because they have all this power, wouldn't that be a better thing? Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.